are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Hello, you're listening to Linguistically Aware, a conversation-based podcast about the ways we use, understand, and think about language. My name is Dusan Nikolic, and I'm sitting down with linguists, experts who study language, to talk about a number of roles language plays in our lives. This is CJSW 90.9 FM broadcasting on the traditional territories of all the people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 of Southern Alberta. This is CJSW, and for us, Black Lives Matter and Indigenous Lives Matter. In this episode, I talked to David M. Sidhu, a postdoctoral scholar at University College London. David has a PhD in psychology from the University of Calgary, and his specialty is sound symbolism, the study of relationship between sounds and meaning. On this podcast, we talked about the ways meaning is associated with sounds, which personality types correspond to which sounds, and how parents name their babies. I want to thank you for coming, and I want to welcome you to the third episode of Linguistically Aware, a spoken word program talking about language use. So we are focusing mainly on language use, and I digressed a little bit from inviting linguists. I invited you, and you are a psychologist whose work revolves mainly around sound symbolism. And sound symbolism is a topic that is more linguistically inclined. So uh, first of all, why did you select, why did you choose psychology? And how did you choose sound symbolism as your topic? Sure. So psychology, I have to think back a while now, but Hmm. so think back to high school, I think I've always been interested in what's going on under the hood for people. So what is happening behind sort of what's happening that you can't see, what's driving people's behavior, their thoughts, their actions that you can't really observe. And so I think that initially is what attracted me to psychology, kind of getting under the hood a little bit in that sense. And then in terms of sound symbolism, I remember it was an undergrad. I first heard about it and it it captivated me right away. It was kind of revealed this hidden dimension to language. So I think we, I had always thought about language as being very, you know, utilitarian. We have um, sets of sounds that refer to things, but the sounds themselves are just there to refer to those things. They don't have any value in and of themselves. But once I started learning about sound symbolism, it revealed that there is also meaning on that end, that the sounds and the words we use have some, you know, inherent meaning and qualities in and of themselves. And that I found very interesting. Um, And I think in general, in a lot of my research, I'm very interested in how things in different modalities can be connected to one another. Um, Even before I I started studying psychology, you know, um, I loved hearing people talk about music, for example, and say that a song felt crunchy to them or it felt bright to them, this sort of thing. So this question of how something auditory could be described in visual or tactile terms, I've always been attracted to that kind of a question. And I think sound symbolism applies that question to language. Yeah, great. 
And uh, what is, in your opinion, sound symbolism? How would you describe it for our listeners who are not familiar with it? Sure. So I tend to think about it as links between language sounds and certain semantic or perceptual properties. So the most well-known example is the Maluma Tikiti effect. It's that if you're presented with these two invented words like Maluma and Tikiti and told that one maybe in an alien language refers to a round shape, one refers to a sharp shape. Most people are going to say that Maluma is the round shape and Tikiti is the sharp shape. And so that's kind of suggestive of the fact that there's something in these sounds like L and M that is associated with roundness and something in the sounds T and K that are associated with sharpness. So that's kind of the essence of sound symbolism that um, phonemes and language sounds have these kind of inherent associations to certain properties. How is uh, sound symbolism different from onomatopoeia, for example, from a kaboom, bang, from those kind of sounds? Is it different? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think it's more indirect. So I've used the words um, direct iconicity and indirect iconicity. Um, and then so just to define iconicity, it's cases where the sound of a word resembles its meaning. So in a case like kaboom, like you said, that would be a direct case because the sound of kaboom sort of directly resembles the sound of something exploding, um, give or take a little bit. Um, but then when you've got a word like, um, we'll choose a real word like cactus that refers to something sharp. Um, and it itself doesn't really sound like a cactus, but it kind of is evocative of sharpness and you know jaggedness. And so it's this more indirect link. Um, yeah, that's kind of an indirect answer to your question, but so um, sound symbolism is a more indirect version of iconicity than automatopoeia. Yeah, we are coming to that um, topic of arbitrariness. How arbitrary are those uh, sounds that make up some name of an object or of, of anything? Are they arbitrary or is there non-arbitrariness as well? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, so I think for a long time, people had said that language is arbitrary. And I, I like to kind of separate that question into to two questions. So one, does language have to be arbitrary? And one, is it arbitrary? So um, I would say that language can get along completely fine being arbitrary. It doesn't, um, you could imagine a language that's entirely arbitrary and it totally works that way. But the language that we have, I would say that there are examples of non-arbitrariness in this language. Um, so we already brought up onomatopoeia. That's one example of it. Um, that would be an example of iconicity. And then there's this other form of non-arbitrariness that people call systematicity, which are these sort of broad statistical patterns in groups of words. So as an example, if you compare words for abstract things, like you know, justice, um, brainstorm, these kinds of things, and you compare those words to concrete words, like words for objects, um, abstract words tend to be longer. So this is another form of non-arbitrariness where there's kind of these broad patterns in groups of words. And when you put all that together, um, it's actually hard to find a word that is entirely arbitrary. Um, so I think rather than sort of loop, um, grouping them into categories, it's more this question of a continuum from arbitrariness to non-arbitrariness and words can fall anywhere along that continuum. Hmm, that's interesting. 
I never thought about this in that way. Why do you think that there is some connection to sounds with these names? What is the underlying reasoning for that? Yeah, this is still an open question, which is, which is kind of exciting. But I can talk about some of the ideas that people have brought forth. So one idea is that it's, it's a very visual thing. If you, maybe we can talk about the vowels in this effect. So mm-hmm. in general, rounded vowels tend to get associated with round shapes. And unrounded vowels tend to go, get associated with jagged shapes. So some people say that it's, it's a visual thing that you see a person's mouth pronounce an O sound or an O sound. That's kind of got a roundedness to it. And that links it with rounded shapes. So that's one explanation, a very direct one. Um, another idea is that it has to do with the sounds themselves. So if you think about um, sonorants like lemana versus voice that stops, patika, which is normally the contrast that's made, um, there's kind of a you know an abruptness to those voice that stops, which kind of mimics those abrupt changes in the outline of a jagged shape, which contrasts them from from sonorants. Um, so it could be to do with the sounds. And then there's also this kinesthetic property to these to these phonemes when you pronounce a t versus a m. The t also feels much more abrupt and sudden. And so it could be that physical sensation that people are linking to the shapes as well. And it could be some combination of, of all of these. Yeah, it doesn't have to be just one. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind and it's tricky, I guess. It's tricky because these things are also confounded with one another. It's hard to manipulate just the sound or just the articulation. Um, so it's a really hard thing to pin down. I wanted to ask you about the intonation. For example, if, mm. I, if I say buva and I say kiki, I sound very sweet or whichever adjective you want to use. And I could use it in a low, low voice, buba or kiki, or, you know, mm-hmm. manipulate it a little bit. So it doesn't seem to be that universal. Is intonation universal in that way? Is it uh, connected to somehow to sound symbolism as well? Yeah, I think that they can both contribute and they can both map onto different properties. Um, So I'm actually um, working on a paper now where we look at um, the length of words and the length of durations, sorry, the duration of events. So you can think about being able to drag out a vowel, like saying that was a very long um, bike ride or, or, or something like that. And in that way, intonation is mapping onto the length of the event. Um, so absolutely, intonation plays a role. And I know of at least one study that has kind of looked at them together, um, the properties of phonemes and the, the prosody with which they're pronounced. And it seems to suggest they both play a role and that they can actually be additive onto one another. To me, as a linguist, it seems that intonation is more universal than some some sounds, but it, as you said, it all plays its role. I, I've uh, read a paper by Ohala, and he mentions that some languages cross-linguistically have this feature of um, presenting the, the words that denote size in similar sound structure. For example, in Spanish, you have chico, which is small, and gordo, which is fat or large or big. Um, then you have in Ava, actually, a language uh, spoken in Togo, kitsi-kitsi, I think, referring to small, and um, bug-bug, referring to large. 
if I'm pronouncing these well, but let's say that I am. <laughs> so there is something in there that really sounds small and that really sounds large. How would you describe that uh, phenomenon? Yeah, this is kind of the other big sound symbolic effect. So we've got shape sound symbolism and then size sound symbolism is another another big one. So I think the general effect seems to be that high front vowels like E, like you brought up, get associated with small shapes. And then low back vowels like aw will get associated with larger shapes. Um, and again, there's been a couple of different explanations, but one has to do with the shape of your mouth as you pronounce these vowels. So of course, when you say an E, your tongue's taking up a lot of, a lot of, a lot of space and you only have a small cavity left. Um, when you say aw, you've got a lot of space left in your mouth. And so potentially people are mapping those sensations onto the sizes. Um, another idea, which I think Ohella brings up, I don't, I don't know this paper or another paper, is that it has to do with the sounds themselves and it being higher versus lower pitch. And he actually connects it to evolution and the idea that we've kind of evolved this association between small things and higher pitch sounds because um, there's kind of this pattern in nature where smaller animals make higher pitch sounds. And so we've either evolved that association or maybe evolved the predisposition to develop that association. Um, so that's, those are some ideas for where that comes from. But again, it's multiple theories that are difficult to tease apart. Yeah, great. Um, you've done a research on um, personality types and your research is, is called What's in a Name. Can you tell us something more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the original motivation for this was that these effects we've talked about, size and shape, they're all very um, concrete perceptual associations to sound. So we were curious to know if these sounds also get associated with more abstract properties. Mm -hmm. And so personality was, was one way to get at that. So what we did is we collected real names that either had these sonorant sounds in them, like Noel, for example, or had these voice of stops in them, like um, Kirk or Kate. And then we did a series of experiments where there was some variation of presenting participants with these names and then personality traits and sort of just saying um, either which of these names is more likely to be easygoing or how easygoing is this name, some kind of variation where we got people to associate um, these different kinds of names with personality traits. And the take home message seemed to be that these sonorant names are rated as being more agreeable, more conscientious and more emotional and that the voiceless stop names are judged as being more extroverted. Why is that so? Yeah, that, that, is, uh -huh. that is the question. Um, so if you look at the connotations of these sounds in previous work, um, this, this fits very nicely. So these sonorant sounds are judged as being kind of mellow and smooth. And so our argument was that those um, sort of connotative properties um, apply to these personality traits. You can imagine someone who's easygoing as being sort of metaphorically smooth in terms of their behavior. Um, voiceless stops are judged as being very active, very energetic, and that kind of applies to um, being extroverted. So I haven't really figured out a full model of how this happens, but it, it's there's some sort of process where these sounds are associated with um, connotations because of the way they sound or feel, and then those then apply to certain personality traits would be my, my bet. Are these personal names different from the names of objects or concepts or ideas? Is there any difference in sound symbolism there? 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's a little tricky because so so far with shape sound symbolism, we have studies with non-words and then studies with names. And then the missing piece is kind of what you're asking about, studies with real words for objects. So we're not entirely sure yet. I mean, a name probably invites associations with personality more than a word for an object would. So in that sense, it might bring up more of these these kinds of personality traits. Um, there and then, of are... course, compared to non-words, it's, yeah. um, names have some existing associations. They're different in that way. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say how this will then apply to words for objects. So there is some social aspect to it as well and uh, mm -hmm. cultural. For example, in um, my language, I do have a friend who we call Kiki. Uh, she's a very sweet person, which is different from what you might assume from the name, you know, from Kiki. Right, um, right. And uh, they sometimes call me Duzi, which has the and t in, in it as well, which are not very usually sweet sounding, uh, quote unquote, of course, but it is a, a, a name of affection for me. So mm -hmm. it might be cultural, it might be social, I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, I, the, both those examples you brought up end in that E sound. And that makes me think of what we talked about a little while ago with that kind of being associated with smallness and probably along with that is, you know, cuteness and, and that sort of thing. So I think that might be part of what's going on there, that sort of diminutive um, suffix, let's say, applied to a name that kind of conjures these ideas of being little and sweet. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And then whether, whether it's cultural or not, that, that I don't know. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I've read the... I'm going to quote you, actually, right now. Oh, wow. First time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think you have lots of citations. Don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you have, you have uh, written that associations have been demonstrated between certain phonemes and perceptual dimensions, such as brightness, speed, hue, and taste. That's a kind of introduction. Then I checked the reference that you had on taste, and um, authors found that crisps and I think cranberry sauce is more taquete than cheese, while mint chocolate is rated as more kiki than regular chocolate. <laughs> so this is interesting. What do you think is going on there? So their first idea was that maybe it is a tactile thing that crunchy chips kind of sound like a k. It's kind of a crunchy sound. But I think they ended up landing on this explanation that it has to do with this shared abstract property. Um, and so I think it was salt and vinegar chips in particular. And that, that might be like a very sort of intense flavor. And that intensity is what is linking it with the, the phonemes. Mm -hmm. um, I think I don't remember end, the exact property, but yeah, I think they ended up saying that it doesn't have to do a lot with the sensory quality, yeah, with yeah, a specific yeah. uh, sensation of uh, the food, but mm -hmm. that it might be arbitrary or it might be um, bodily based, not completely arbitrary. I I wouldn't say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they also did bitter chocolate compared with milk chocolate, if I'm right, and the bitter chocolate was more. Kiki, I think I'd have to go back to double check, but and this is a, this would be another case of that bitterness kind of being this intense intensity, and so it being this abstract property that's being connected to the sounds. 
that, mm-hmm. that would be how I'd think about that. You mentioned for the conversation, uh, an online magazine, that people with abrupt sounding names are seen as extroverted. For example, Kate, Tia, Atta, uh, they have this voice of stop in names. And Anne, Noel, Laurel, they have sonorant. And uh, sonorants are characterized by more smooth and continuous sound, and voice stops are more abrupt. If we have a mixture of sonorant and, and stops, what would that uh, indicate? Mm-hmm. And I remember from trying to find names that were just one or the other, most names mm-hmm. are a blend. Um, so Mike, for example. Um, there is some work with non-words which seem to suggest that the first sound contributed more to the associations of the non-word. Mm-hmm. So one possibility is that it has, it would depend on which ones come first. Um, I think it might also have to do with the proportion of the sounds. And so if there's a one voice to stop, but the majority of the sounds are sonorant, it's probably going to evoke sonorant connotations. Um, but yeah, I would guess it would have to do with the placement that maybe the first and the last contribute more than the consonants appearing in the middle. That would be my mm-hmm. guess. Do you have any guesses uh, with respect to um, shortened names or abbreviations, such as, for example, Dave? I guess people call you Dave. Um, I mean, something that just came to mind as you were, you were saying that is that Dave is probably easier to say than David, so it's a bit more fluent, and I wonder if there's something there that it, yeah. it's more likable because it's easier to say. Um, but I think there have been studies looking at name length and personalities that get attributed to the different lengths and i have to double check but i think they the thing they found was that longer names were judged as being more professional and capable than shorter names what do you know about baby names how do parents give uh, their babies names Mm -hmm. so uh, the biggest effect that is out there is that names will differ by gender so that Mm -hmm. that is probably the biggest thing i could say so an example is that um, we compared the top 50 male and female names uh, within Alberta, and we found that female names had a higher proportion of sonorants in them. So that's that's one effect there. Um, there have been studies, I think, which showed that the sound E is more common in female names. Um, so I think that is probably the biggest thing that I could say is that the name a, per- a parent might choose is going to be influenced by whether the baby's you know, a boy or a girl, and then maybe choosing sounds that are uh, consistent with stereotypes of, of, of one gender or the other. It doesn't seem like people are reflective of their names. So in, in, in a paper we recently looked at, about a thousand people, and we had them fill out a personality inventory, and then we got their names as well. We looked to see if there was any link between a person's, the sounds in a person's name and their personality, and there wasn't. So um, people might think that Kate is more extroverted, but it doesn't necessarily predict how extroverted a Kate's going to be. Yes, just based on the sounds, mm-hmm. basing on the certain connotations. For example, let's take Kate, Kate Middleton, uh, who is the Duchess of mm-hmm. York. And uh, you might have that connotation of a person whose name is Kate rather than sounds. Yeah, I mean, we've thought about this as well, but I'm not sure because, so we weren't looking at just specific names. We had, you know, 72 different names, which let us kind of average across any particular name and look at 
certain kinds of names. So um, while Kate might contribute to perceptions of a Kate, I don't know if that is driving all the associations with those sounds when they appear in different names. Can you tell me something about the research across North America in terms of naming conventions? Are there any sounds that are preferred to any other sounds? Um, so I know this effect that I mentioned a second ago about it's kind of it differing by gender. So I, I know that exists. Um, in terms of which sounds are more popular than others, that I don't know. I know there was a study a little while ago which found that when there's excuse me a significant cultural event, Mm -hmm. The example there was Hurricane Katrina, that there were more names in the years following that with the sound K in them. That's interesting. So I don't know if we're going to have a lot of, uh, I don't know, Cody's and David's after COVID-19, but that's, yeah. that's one thing that might contribute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about your research. We said that your research mostly revolve, revolves around sound symbolism. Is there any specific theoretical concept that you are applying or that you are trying to uh, lean on when doing such research? Yeah, uh, for a long time, I was very much informed by embodied cognition, mm -hmm. which is the idea that, you know, cognitive processes are influenced by sensory processes. Um, and in terms of language and word meaning, this would mean that our representation of a word's meaning actually includes sensory properties. Um, so how that affected this earlier on was trying to see if sound symbolism is explainable by physical sensations. So really trying to look at those articulatory explanations for Maluma Tikiti. We did do a lot of studies of that early on, but we kept running into this issue that it's so hard to disentangle articulatory properties from phonological properties. Um, so I would say that I've kind of left that a little bit alone now in terms of my research on sound symbolism. Um, yeah, but that is probably the biggest uh, theory that has informed my research. Great. And uh, what are your future plans? Yeah, I think there's, there's still a lot of questions to answer in terms of in terms of sound symbolism. Some of them we've touched on, trying to get at um, what drives these associations, what properties drive these associations. But then a big one that I really want to get into is what these mean for the processing of natural language. Um, so, for example, when you have a word like cactus, we talked about that a second ago, where its sounds do mesh with its meaning very well, is there any difference in the processing of these kinds of words? And that's something I'd really like to get to the bottom of. Mm -hmm. When you say processing, you mean learning or using? Well, you both, actually. Um, so there is... You mentioned learning. There's some evidence showing that automatopoeia, for example, are um, acquired earlier and make up a bigger proportion of infants' vocabulary than, than adults. Um, so learning is that would definitely be one question. But then I also just meant processing the word. So you know, reading it, how quickly can you retrieve its meaning, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's nice that you brought this up. Um, what kind of experiments are you involved in? What is your methodology? How are you? exploring these issues? Mm -hmm. So this question in particular, I'm actually just now working on a paper where we find uh, a null result of, of this question. So I can tell you what we did there. We, we found um, one-syllable words for objects um, that were either large or small, and then either contained a vowel associated with largeness or smallness. So as an example, 
You have a word like flea, which refers to a small thing, and it has a small vowel in it. And you can contrast that with something like moth, which is roughly the same size, but it has a larger sound in it. So our question was, will people be faster to categorize these words with these congruent vowels in them? And the answer was no. Uh, so, mm -hmm. but in terms of your, your question was a task. So how we did that was we, we showed people these words one at a time and had them categorize uh, the word as large or small by a button press. And that was kind of a proxy for how quickly they could process the meaning of the word. And then we compared the average reaction time for the congruent words to the incongruent words. What does this mean for a language? How is sound symbolism used in language in general? So the big picture take home that I would say is that the sounds in words have the potential to color their meaning in some way. Um, and that's still something we're digging into how that happens under what conditions that happens. But sound symbolism kind of creates this possibility that the sound in a word can do more than just be used to look up its meaning, but that it can have certain qualities in and of itself that might affect how it's processed, how it's interpreted, that sort of thing. And then in terms of how this might be used, um, so one possibility is for language development. Like I touched on a second ago that there's some evidence that automatopoeia are learned earlier. And there's even an idea that they're sort of fundamental to teaching a person that sounds can refer to things in the environment. Um, because you know, when an infant's learning language, they have to figure out that sounds actually refer to things out there in the world. And automatopoeia might bridge that gap because they are a sound referring to a thing in the world, but they actually mimic that thing in the world. So they might help infants create that link. Um, so that's one possibility. And then of course, this has been used in advertising uh, quite a bit. So coming up with brand names for things that are congruent with uh, the things themselves, you know, pointy names for knives, things like that. And then in poetry and in, in fiction, and I think that's a great, um, we're sort of road forward for this research, looking at how the sounds of words in poetry or in fiction can contribute to the, the reader's experience and how they color the reader's experience. Yeah, great. In fact, your uh, paper, What's in a Name, came from Shakespeare. That's just a good hook. It's uh, People are familiar with that quote, but that, that quote is actually addressing this very question. Does the sound in a name affect you know what you think about that thing? So it was relevant and also recognizable. Yeah, that's great. I, I love the idea. Um, thanks a lot for uh, participating in this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. That was David Sidhu with his take on sound symbolism. Make sure to tune in to the upcoming Linguistically Aware episodes on CJSW. If you want to know more about linguists based in Calgary, visit calgarylinguistics.ca. If you want to know more about David and his work, visit David M. Sidhu.